welcome to the Edinburgh Film Podcast with me, Dr. David Sorfer, at the University of Edinburgh. And in today's podcast, we're really happy to have Dean Roderick uh, coming to speak to us and to me and to you, I suppose. So, Professor Roderick is the Glenn A. Lloyd Distinguished Service Professor in Cinema and Media Studies and the College at the University of Chicago. Uh, David came to Edinburgh um, and gave a talk on the 27th of November 2018. And before that talk, David and I sat down in my office and we, we talked about his career and his various books and how he's seen uh, changes in the development of film theory and film philosophy over the last 20 or more years. Anyway, we'll go straight into that discussion. So I was, I was you know, I, I kind of, I've, I've, I've brought out all the great, the collected works of oh, Dean no, Roderick. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were talking some of these books last night and, and various ideas mm. that, that have come up. And I think perhaps it would be, be interesting just to start talking about how you became interested in film theory and mm-hmm. how you moved from being a student into being an academic, you know, the kind of beginning yeah. of your career. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it, every time I ask, it's, it's never less true to say that it all just happened by accident. <laughs> like every twist and turn of my career happened mm. by accident, <laughs> including having um, I moved to Austin, Texas in the mid-70s, um, ostensibly to give up my day job and become a full-time professional musician. Mm. And uh, six months later, I found myself back in, in university, um, uh, partly because at that time, I was already, by that time, I was two years behind all of my peers, mm-hmm. and many of whom were already starting master's programs. And it was the heyday of semiology and structuralism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just, I mean, I had this, still had this whole circle of friends who were musicians, but I had this whole circle of friends who were graduate students. Mm. Um, in some cases, they were musicians and graduate students. Um, and I just was gradually seduced into this discourse. And having decided to go finish my undergraduate degree, I thought I would study philosophy, mm. only to have to confront the fact that at the University of Texas philosophy department at the time, you had to take two terms of symbolic logic before they let you take anything else. <laughs> I went, oh, well, I don't know. I'm too lazy to do that. Um, and I ended up taking, you know, quite a few classes, basically in complete, you know, mm. anywhere I could Fine, Roland Bart, Michel Foucault, Claude Levi Strauss, um, and for because those books were being translated at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know French yet, um, but it was it just it was in the air, and I was interested in conversations. And at the same time, I was really getting involved with the local film societies, of which there were many. Mm. I mean, there still are, but it was you know in those days, it's, especially Austin was hopping with film societies 
Um, and uh, lucky, luckily, being the 1970s, in fact, it still exists. There's this program called the Humanities Program, which is basically design your own degree. <laughs> and so I, um, and it was actually a very interesting place to be because it was very cross disciplinary, and the, and the professors who were invested in it were really brilliant and, and interesting. And I began putting together just this degree of the stuff I was interested in. Um, was there much film teaching? Well, this is the other thing. At first, I mean, it never occurred to me I would do something called film studies, um, and it didn't quite really exist. Uh, there, 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 there is, there was a department of communications, um, but there wasn't really a lot going on there apart from journalism and, and radio, TV, mm. film production. Um, but I don't. Do you know who Middlesent Marcus, aka Penny Marcus, is? Who does Italian cinema? Uh, she's done some quite uh, excellent books on Italian cinema, and she arrived um, as a brand new assistant professor from Cornell and was teaching this class on Italian cinema. And since I was really interested in, in Italian cinema. Uh, just from the film societies, I took this 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 class from her, which is interesting because I think there's not more than than two years difference in age between us. But she was, you know, one of those people who just blasted through school and got a PhD early, and I was still working away on my undergraduate degree. Um, uh, this was mind blowing, you know, that that I could do this, um, and so I just began looking around. Um, actually, her partner taught her French film class, so there was that. Um, but there, there wasn't really a lot in film. The key moment, the real crossroads for me, is that there was a wonderful woman, oh, I'm going to have to remember her name now, um, who was teaching a seminar on Brecht. Because mm-hmm. I, I was also interested in theater. And uh, uh, I, uh, oh, I can't think of her name. She actually, unfortunately, died in a car accident not too long after I had a class with her. Um, and just, I was, I thought, I thought maybe, of course, nobody's written about Brecht in film. And then suddenly in the University of Texas library, I discovered this magazine called Screen. Mm-hmm. And this guy named Stephen Heath and this guy named Ben Brewster. And like, oh, they published two issues on Brecht. I'm reading this stuff. Um, and uh, it's really interesting. Now, apart from that, I was, I was about to graduate and didn't quite know what to do. Uh, at the same time I'm taking this class on Brecht and Cinema, I'm walking through the French department, and I see this little poster on the wall. It says, study film in Paris. <laughs> I go, well, I don't have any money, and I don't speak any French, but that sounds like a really good idea. And uh, it turns out that there was another guy you probably haven't heard of, but who's very, very brilliant. Uh, Nate, oh God, end of the day. <laughs> this is a close friend of mine, and I'm just blanking on his name. It'll come back to me in a second, and then you'll be able to edit mm-hmm. George Lellis. His mm-hmm. name is George Lellis. And he refreshed cinema and film theory. And in the Department of Communication, I don't know how um, he managed to do that. And my professor, whose also name I'm going to remember in a minute, <clears throat> said... He's just come back from Paris in this program. Why don't you go talk to him? George Lellis. His mm. name is George Lellis, and he retired recently. Um, he's teaching at Coker College in South Carolina for many years. 
And this was this, this, this phenomenal thing because George is a very, very brilliant guy. Um, sort of in the Bazan Krakauer mold, he had a, a very severe stutter, mm-hmm. um, uh, which inhibited in some respects his academic career, but he had a successful one at this uh, small college <clears throat> in South Carolina. And so we had these brilliant conversations about Brechtian cinema, and he helped me with my paper and stuff, and I was talking about going to this program and how could I do it <clears throat> and he said David look here, here's what you're going to do this guy who I met by accident through Betty oh, her name's coming back to me Betty it'll come back to me too like George's name did he says here's what you're going to do um, you're going to enroll in the MA program here in uh, radio TV film in the film area and uh, you're going to save your money and you're going to start in intensive French. And you might finish your MA, you might not. Um, uh, but then you're going to go to Paris, and it's going to be great, and, you know, and you'll know what you want to do then. And this is indeed what I did. Um, the other great thing that happened was, um, in fact, a new book was just published, because there was a, a film society called Cinema Texas mm-hmm. um, that um, actually was a group of MA students mostly uh, doing film. And the, the couple of people who were teaching film at, at Texas, basically, they didn't program their own classes. They'd say, uh, um, I'm teaching the Western. Go program the Western for me. And so Cinema Texas, what they did was they had double screenings four nights a week, Monday through Thursday. The graduate students were programming all the film, and we wrote program notes for them, mimeographed. And back in the 70s, um, these things were um, precious. I mean, they were collected by the Museum of Modern Art and so forth because there was no Wikipedia. There was no place to get... What they had besides film criticism was complete filmographies and, and, and bibliog- critical bibliographies, um, uh, which were precious at the time. And I mentioned this is a, a, this is a pitch for this new book because... Um, uh, University of Texas Press just published an edited collection uh, of these notes, and there's going to be a second volume oh, as well. Fantastic. So, um, and if I had any memory, I'd even tell you the title of it. But it's, you know, it's got Cinema Texas in the title, or it's something like early Austin film culture, Cinema Texas. And um, so this was a, a, a really amazing group of people, very brilliant um, the most brilliant among them was probably Ed Lowry, who also died very young of, of AIDS. Um, but so I was just in this culture, um, and the crazy one, because nobody was doing film theory. Mm. But, <laughs> um, but and, oh, and the other important thing that was completely backset when I started this MA um, was also the first year Tom Schatz was brought into the department okay. from Iowa. Because nobody else in the department had any idea what I was doing. And Tom, really, he was my advisor. He took me under his wing. Um, he got me through that first year of the MA. And then, indeed, I went off to Paris um, hmm. for the year. And Tom Schatz writes about Hollywood and early Hollywood. He did that genius yeah, yeah. system mm-hmm. book as yeah, well. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, having come out of Iowa and having been a student of Dudley Andrews, he, he knew about film theory, mm. taking classes in film theory, and he was open to what I was doing in a way that other professors in the department weren't. I was still taking classes in comp lit mm. and doing 
stuff there. Um, but Tom was really kind of my guardian angel. Um, and so indeed, I went to Paris, uh, and among other things, it's when I became a kind of Raymond Bleur protege, <laughs> discovered by Raymond Bleur in Paris. Uh, and uh, it was also an interesting time because most of the early editors of Camera Obscura were all in Paris. Uh, Janet Bergstrom was mm-hmm. there, Constance Penley was there, mm-hmm. Liz Lyon was there. I became really good friends with them all. And Janet, in particular, who was already doing her PhD, like really helped me think about where would I go for my PhD and, and talk to me about graduate school. And so after the year in Paris, I ended up coming back and finishing an MA um, at Texas and having a slacker year and playing in punk, punk, punk bands and things like that. Um, and I had the choice between Iowa and UCLA, decided to go to Iowa. And I mean, that is basically how it came together for me. And the, and the beautiful thing about Iowa was, is of course, Dudley was primarily a professor in comparative literature. Hmm. And so to do a PhD at Iowa meant, again, being able to really split my time between doing, well, film theory, really, and a lot of stuff in comparative literature. And even more important, there's um, a a very important experimental filmmaker who everyone should know of, but most, you and probably your listeners don't know either, name uh, uh, Franklin Miller, who mm-hmm. was teaching there. Um, he's the most important American experimental filmmaker that nobody's ever heard of, mm-hmm. because he just, he made, he's made thousands of films and videos, but he was just, he was known throughout the Midwest, but he never promoted himself. Mm-hmm. But he had this, generations of really interesting students coming through. For example, Leighton Pierce and I were students at the same time. And that's when I started really seriously making experimental films and entering them in festivals. And so I had the perfect life hmm. split between sort of film theory, uh, comparative literature, meaning French and German aesthetic mm-hmm. philosophy and contemporary mm-hmm. philosophy, continental philosophy, and filmmaking. Mm. And, it, you know, I wish I could say I was such a clever person that I planned that it would all happen this way. But in a sense, that brief trajectory I just described is kind of what sort of set the path for me. Um, I mean, there's things mm-hmm. like my, my filmmaking career had almost a three-decade interregnum. Um, but now that it's back, it, it seems like there's mm. some kind of, you know... <laughs> yeah, and you screened one of your... the, the Fetris film, I think, at uh, Film Philosophy in Lancaster. Yeah. And, and, and we've seen those. Yeah. What was your actual PhD work on? Uh, my PhD uh, was the book that became Crisis of Political Modernism. Right. Um, Which I have here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that, like most people, the dissertation was very different, but it was the core of the book. Mm. Right? It was, it was mm. the same uh, a project. Um, yeah. And this, I mean, for me, Crisis in Political Modernism, or the Crisis of Political Modernism, is such a fascinating book because it's a very nuanced critique of what well, I suppose what we'd call ideology criticism mm-hmm. um, in a way that I must say I almost kind of rediscovered this book 
maybe five years ago, mm. um, and just where I'd been trying to think through those problems of yeah. ideology and so mm-hmm. on, which had become to me almost rote, yeah. that people were making moral judgments yeah. about films yeah. based on what they saw as their ideological yeah. stance. Yeah. And then I kind of remembered that I'd read something by you about <laughs> something. And then, and then I, I kind of... Amongst my juvenilia. <laughs> and it's coming back to this book and just sort of finding this very nuanced kind of thinking through of what that ideological criticism actually meant. And how was that received when it first came out? Oh, it first came out from University of Illinois Press and almost immediately went out of print. <laughs> <laughs> and then thanks to Linda Williams, because her first book on surrealism also was for Illinois Press, yeah. went almost immediately out of print. And Ed Dimenberg at University of California Press... This was in 1988. Yeah, he yeah. kind of rescued it, uh, Linda's mm. book, and reprinted Figures it. Figures of Desire. Yes, yeah. and so I asked Linda and Ed about that, and, and Ed, you know, Linda was very helpful, but then Ed, like, jumped on it and and then reprinted the book with a new preface. And This is the here. second edition, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, I think it must be later than 88, isn't it? I well, I think originally it was originally, here, originally, originally like and this is 1994, this, okay. this, this, this edition. And the, the book kind of had a new life then, but I think... When I listened to your, your very kind response to it, I, I'm hearing something that echoed in my own wanting to write the book. Because my original idea in Iowa, and it's funny because it's in a very different manifestation, it's still an idea I have, I was, was the idea of what would it mean to do theory through films, mm. right? Because I was really interested in Scream, and I was really interested in what Peter Wall and Laura Mulvey were doing, both as writers and as filmmakers. And plus, I eventually became very close to both Peter mm-hmm. and Laura to talk about these questions. Um, but the, very quickly, the dissertation became not that. But through the influence of Foucault, <laughs> who remains like a kind of like in my deep DNA in thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so, I was so, you know, immersed in what now is called, for better or worse, screen theory. And in retrospect, I realized that I wrote the dissertation and that book, you know, not so much to make a gloss on screen theory or even to like deconstruct uh, political modernism, ideology critique. Um, you know, more and more, I, I, I look back at almost all my work and think about it as critique in the Kantian sense. It's like, what are the epistemological limits of the discourse we live in? And even Foucault kind of owes up to that idea and the mm-hmm. influence of, of Kant, especially the, uh, the um, l- works on anthropology. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which... So what I, you know, I think I would be horrified if people read Crisis of Political Modernism and gone, all right, he's, he's done away with screen theory, you know, he's undermined ideology critique. And it wasn't about that at all. In a personal level, it was about opening a new space to, to think differently for me, to not feel entrapped by that discourse, but to think my way out towards another direction. Um, and I'm perfectly happy if people read it as like an introduction to mm. 70s film theory. I'm pleased for it to be that. But I'm also pleased when I, when I, when I talk to people who, 
who having read it feel they have now they're freer mm. with respect to that mm. with mm. that discourse I think. Um, and what's interesting about that book and also some of your earlier articles and reviews published in the early 80s is that this was a period where people were still in film talking about Derrida all right yeah and Anyway, well, quite, very few of them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm quite interested how Derrida disappears yeah. uh, after the late 80s, more yeah. or less out of the film yeah. discourse. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, there's, there's that, that kind of... There's, there's people like Claire Ropers-Williams. Mm. Marie Claire's Marie Claire Ropers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you, you talk about Foucault, but to me, a, a kind of whenever I think of this period of your work, it's always yeah. your engagement with Derrida that seems to stand yeah. out for me. And, and that way that you, you talked about yeah. mapping the limits of the possibility yeah. of what you can think yeah. seems to me a very Derridian kind yeah. of idea. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because you, you reminded me I left out an extremely important piece of that mm. <laughs> early life, which was another piece of like blind good luck, which is... Um, when I came back from Paris, and I had that year to finish my master's thesis and my slacker year in punk bands, what have you, was a very brief time when Gayatri Spivak was teaching at the University of Texas. <laughs> who I, so I'm going to give you gossip for your podcast. Right. Who I met because my birthday is at the end of summer, which means it's always right before school starts, so it's an excuse to have a big party. And uh, Gayatri crashed my birthday party. <laughs> Someone brought her along, and that's how I met her. Um, and we became quite good friends. And, and also, I, although I didn't need to take any classes anymore, um, she was teaching a class on Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. Wow. Why am I not going to take that? You know, so I, I was in there. Um, and in retrospect, um, what that course was really about was her working through her, her introduction to of grammatology. Mm. Um, I mean, her not saying so much. They were being published about. It came out pretty soon afterwards. But the the I mean, Gottfried was a massive influence on me, and and early on was a really close friend and a mentor. Um, and the other wonderful thing about that seminar, which I love to tell my own graduate students, is I came back from France, and I'm all cocky, and I'm the guy who was there. At Bart's Collège de France lectures, and you know, studying with Raymond Ballour and and Thierry Kunsel, and um, um, and I'd already read Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, but um, I must say, in that seminar in sixteen weeks, I didn't understand word one. I mean, I was at sea. Uh, I could tell longer stories, but this is a twenty-minute podcast. Mm. But the important thing about that experience for me was that I couldn't give it up. I was at sea the way of, why am I so invested in this? Why am I not getting why Gayatri organized the material in this way and what she said about it? And so it's a class in which I can say I understood nothing, but I literally spent maybe the next four or five years of my life figuring it out, mm. which basically also meant figuring out Derrida. Mm. Um, because I was maybe alone at that point among my peers reading of grammatology and things like that. Because in so-called screen circles, you know, in the, in the, in the world of, you know, Cambridge, <laughs> Stephen E., mm -hmm. Screen Theory, London, there you know, was persona non grata. Mm. I mean, not in French departments, but in film departments. Um, 
But lucky me, yet again, after all this, I got my first job where? At Yale University Complet. Mm. In the heyday of Derrida, Hills Miller. Um, there I'm you just, go. <laughs> I'm just holding up uh, the Yale Critics Deconstruction in America, that really famous collection. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I was in a very welcoming place um, where, again, people like Hillis Miller and Paul DeMond, uh, not Paul, because Paul DeMond died in the first term I was there, mm-hmm. though I did get to meet him, uh, Peter Brooks and, mm-hmm. and Hillis Miller, especially Peter, again, were really important mentors who kind of like steered me through the difficult path of being an assistant professor at Yale. But Derrida was there, um, mm. and it was, it was a very rich time, again, that was very open to the type of work I was wanting to do in the context mm. of film and the visual arts, but in the context of philosophy. Mm. Uh, uh, and is this when you started working on difficulty of difference? Right. So I finished, um, I finished Crisis of Political Modernism, and, and, and I finished Difficulty of Difference for my second book, um, so that I might have some some prayer of getting tenure, but of course mm. I, I did not. <laughs> but I, I uh, uh, you know, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, nobody gets tenure at, at places like that as assistant professors. But I also had the, um, the uh, in terms of adding gossip to the podcast, had a very good idea of my uh, second year as assistant professor to help lead a strike against the university. <laughs> so why? <laughs> it was because the clerical and technical workers were. Um, forming a union, and the existing union um, refused to cross their picket lines, and so the university was closed out. For, but that was, I mean, Cornell West was there, so I was working with Cornell West on the strike. and it, So it was a very important time for me as well, um, but, you know, of course I wasn't going to get tenure, um, uh, which is fine. I moved on mm-hmm. to Rochester to visual and cultural studies, right. which is very important, because that's where my interest in art was rekindled. Hmm. Um, uh, so it was probably the trauma of not getting tenure was probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. God, I wonder whether if we if we sort of kind of think about where because because I think that, that in a way I I started as a as a as a as an undergraduate student in the late eighties mm-hmm. and became a graduate student in the during this period I was becoming you know in the early 90s doing my masters mm-hmm. and so on I actually met Gayatri Spivak once when she came to visit I was at the University of Cape Town mm-hmm. in South Africa and she came must have been 91 or 92 mm-hmm. and the main thing I remember of her is not understanding a single word she said but being mesmerized mm-hmm. mainly by the way she held a cup of tea <laughs> for <laughs> 20 minutes balanced on the palm of her hand which she would mysteriously appear in the other hand, yeah. and I could never work out how she did that. Yeah. But, you know, this, this kind of... That was kind of where I sort of came in, and I think mm-hmm. that's when, when I first read Difficulty of Difference mm-hmm. as well, during that period, a little bit later. And um, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how... Sort of looking at what film studies is now. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether you can sort of fast forward to today and, 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 and thinking about what you find interesting about what's happening in the film yeah. world today. It's, <laughs> let me preface my answer mm. to that question by saying the, the other you know, odd thing about my career is I thought by the time I arrived at Harvard, which was my fourth job, 
people sort of joking about me being the Johnny Appleseed of film studies, you know, the American folktale of Johnny mm-hmm. Appleseed, going around making apple orchards. Um, because when I arrived at Yale, the dean asked me to create an undergraduate film studies program, which they've been trying to do unsuccessfully for 20 years. And Donald Crafton and I did that. And at that point, which was 1983, I said Yale from 83 to 1990, you asked the question, what does film studies look like there? What is an undergraduate curriculum? And it was one idea, which was sort of defending the idea that there's some kind of disciplinary um, core sets of methods or ideas mm-hmm. in both theory and history. When I got to Rochester, there was a, had been a long-standing kind of a bit conservative film studies degree, but they asked me to reconstruct it, as it were. Um, in there's the a co- film archive there as well. Well, there's the Eastman House, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. which has a, has a relationship to the university, but they're not officially put mm-hmm. together. Um, and so there again, I redesigned this this, this, this undergraduate degree, um, and there were graduate students also there, like Mark Betts, Susan mm-hmm, Kings mm-hmm, was, mm-hmm. was my graduate student there, um, and Heather Hendershot, and some really brilliant people. Um, but so in a sense that I was remapping what it would look like to do film after film, as it were, because then we are also interested in adding media studies. And Lisa Cartwright, who had been my PhD student at Yale, we were also really interested in what would become known as digital culture studies. Mm. And so we were doing video art and electronic media and digital cultural stuff. And, and how do you now factor in film in relation to that? Mm. You know? And then when I went to King's, so not getting the full arc, um, again, it's now 2000. King's College in London. King's College in London. Again, the question of what does film studies look like today? And actually, out of that came the virtual life of film, mm. and which was, you know, or the whole project that virtual life of film plus LG for theory, which was thinking about what does it mean to talk about film studies after the disappearance of, the, of both the photographic object or even the disappearance of the justification of analog photography as an ontology. And also, what what becomes a theory now? Because by that point in 2000, you know, history was very ascendant. Mm. Uh, like my colleague Tom Gunning's <laughs> world, but you know, early cinema, the whole revising of uh, film history was on the ascendance. People weren't really talking about theory very much, and even I was had already had my foot two thirds out the way out of the door where screen theory is concerned. And working more and more in a what we now call other philosophy or film philosophy, mm. philosophical context. Um, so each stage, you know, it seems like every eight years the question was reopened. Um, and it's odd. I mean, film studies. Well, I, I mean, it's not film studies anymore. It's there's a reason why the the organization become. Uh, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, mm-hmm. and it embraces digital cultural studies, it embraces cultural studies, it embraces, you know, contemporary art, it, can, it embraces film philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would be impossible almost to ask the question is there some kind of unifying disciplinary theme? Uh, in terms of methods or questions, um, 
I couldn't say anymore. Mm-hmm. And thank God that I don't have to create <laughs> new programs anymore. I mean, the last thing I did was to create the new PhD in film and visual studies at Harvard, mm-hmm. uh, which was designed principally with my former colleague, Juliana Bruno. And there we were very attentive to the fact that, that the, the film is no disciplinary object anymore. It's like, I mean, call it movie... The most specific thing you can say are moving images. Yeah, they're moving on whatever kind of screen from whatever kind of materiality. Um, and, uh, and we were very concerned being in an art department together, visual and environmental studies, to think about the moving image in relationship to both contemporary art and contemporary philosophy. Um, and we also thought of that as a kind of a niche thing. <laughs> that was our niche Harvard mm. thing. Though I was super happy there. And in many respects, I regret having left it. But that doesn't represent the whole of film studies. Mm. I mean, that was an important niche that people like Juliana and I were super happy in. And Juliana is still happy in. Um, but I would be hard-pressed to say... Um, and there's, I mean, even, you know, at Chicago, where I now am, there's such a variety of work among the PhD students there. Um, yeah, I, I, my finger's no longer in the wind yeah. about, you know, where the field is going. But your own, your own thinking, I mean, just thinking about the talk you're going to be giving at Edinburgh today, um, you, and, and I see that in your teaching, both in Paris and yeah. Berlin, you seem to be engaging more with what we would call modern art or contemporary yeah. art yeah. rather than film as such. Yeah. And is that a kind of move you see in your own interest? Yeah. It's, it's, it's um, in a double sense, one of which is that having been in an art department at Harvard 10 years ago, uh, suddenly a fuse got lit under that dormant part of me um, who was an experimental filmmaker and, and I have a very active parallel career. Mm doing experimental video and moving image installation, hopefully with a show coming up in Berlin in the spring, um, having done one two years ago with the same gallery. But the, the other important thing to me, and this is the kind of the theme of my last published book, which is What Philosophy Wants from Images. You keep yeah. holding these things up as if people are going to say <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm holding it up to the microphone. Yeah. That's make the sound um, of the book. Which is a, a book I never expected to write, um, except that I found at some point that I had kept returning. Because it's funny, most of my books are really, they're, they're based on ideas and arguments. Um, uh, I, I don't actually write about films or artworks very much or haven't, uh, except for selected examples. But I had this period um, after Virtual Life of Film and when I was like um, uh, writing that, uh, surfing that tidal wave that became Elegy for Theory and Philosophy Sartful Conversation, where people kept asking me about, oh, write things digital because you did this book called Virtual Life of Film. But what interested me was artists working in digital video, working with digital means, and I, I kept giving lectures or writing pieces on art, and I found that I kept returning to certain artists because they were recurrently raising the, the, those Im, impossible ontological questions to me, or the fact kept raising the question that there is no ontology that anchors our, our, our belief, our knowledge, our, our desire in relation to um, uh, the moving image. And hence, uh, uh, one of the main themes in the book, which is how contempt- certain kinds of contemporary art 
raise what I call a, a naming crisis around objects. Is it still? Is it moving? Is it photographic? Is it uh, video? Um, and I'll talk uh, about some of that today. Mm. It's like you know, you know, even you know, <laughs> painting. Where does it sit? So so much of what is called painting doesn't even involve paint anymore. Mm. You know, and so uh, I found myself wanting to write about contemporary art because I'm so involved in that world as an artist, but also because I'm constantly coming across work that raises really fascinating and to some extent irresolvable philosophical questions to me about medium and ontology and sensation and belief. Um, and I think so. you were saying yesterday that you're moving on to return to Brecht, I think. Is mm -hmm. that right? No? No, I didn't hear that from me. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I might go see the Good Woman of Szechuan in Berlin next All month, right. but, but that's as, as much as it goes. Right. No, I'm, I'm working principally on Hannah Arendt and the principle that's of judgment. Right. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Which has a lot to do with philosophy and aesthetics and politics. And will have a bit to do with, with art, but maybe not a lot with film, or at least not yet. It doesn't. Um, it's, it's a book about judgment in relation to art and politics. Yeah, and no, I think that's a fascinating question. I've yeah. definitely, in with undergraduate students and some of my graduate students, have been talking quite a lot about the problem of judgment. Yeah, we haven't quite got to unpacking Kant as, <laughs> as such, but just kind of thinking about those simple yeah. questions that are everyday questions yeah. of film and and art and yeah. so on. I think we've been going for about nearly nearly just over half an hour, so okay. I think maybe we should. Uh, wrap it up and so you've got my entire career plus a pitch for my <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah book exactly. my book to come exactly. so it's that's all a good thing for me yeah brilliant yeah. okay excellent so we'll we'll stop that